I'd like to begin with an acknowledgement to country. I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. This land has always been a learning space for many Aboriginal nations, and the NCCC draws strength and guidance from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing, being, and doing. So with having said that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Stefan Shepard. Uh, he's completed his BA in Criminology from Monash University in 2005, a Master of Communications in 2007, and Thanks everyone for your attendance. It's really good to be here today. I too want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people. Thank you for having me on our country today uh, for this presentation. Um, I've got a Creole background and I'm based in, in Melbourne, Victoria. Um, although I had just spent a very interesting year in the US, in the Midwest. Um, my area is forensic mental health. So um, for people unaware with that sort of niche area, it is the interface of mental health and the law. And what I tend to do is I look at the methods and measures that uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, other health professionals use when working with people who have contact with the criminal justice system. But what I specifically look at is whether those methods and measures um, actually extend appropriately or commensurately uh, to people from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, now, today I'm going to cover a bit of terrain, uh, but the point I want to get across today is, I guess, how we can uh, sort of take more of a therapeutic approach in, in justice health and how we can do a, better, uh, do a lot better in meeting the needs of Indigenous people in custody. But I want to undergird uh, my presentation first by talking about crime rates and imprisonment rates. I think that's important because these concepts are not actually the same thing. They're often talked about as being the same thing. But imprisonment rates refer to how many people are actually locking up. Uh, crime rates refer uh, more to the amount of criminal activity uh, coming to the attention of police. So they're not completely mutually exclusive, but they do tend to fluctuate or, or work independently of each other. So you might have two states, and I saw this in the US as well, you might have two states with similar crime rates, um, however, they have completely different imprisonment rates. You might even have one state that has had uh, a stability in their crime rates for some period of time, however, you will see some fluctuation in the imprisonment rate there. So, for example, some of you might know in New South Wales recently there was an interesting report, a report which showed that over the past 15 years, arrests for Indigenous people had actually declined significantly, but imprisonment rates had actually grown. Um, you could also point to Victoria here in the last 10 years, um, particularly for the 18 to 20 year old age group. Um, we've seen a, well, I'd say, comparatively stable uh, uh, amount of crime. However, the imprisonment rates have fluctuated as well for that particular group. So, so what's going on there? Well, I would say that because they're both underpinned by different forces. Now, this is somewhat simplified, but I would say that um, crime rates are very much linked to social deprivation um, and opportunities. Uh, opportunity structures in society. So if you basically go to any jurisdiction and you want to sort of work out what are the postcodes where the prison population comes from, it tends to be the areas that are underprivileged, the areas that are under-resourced, uh, the areas where you'll find intergenerational unemployment um, and just general adverse surroundings um, and, and you know, the possibilities for cumulative negative life events. Um, and around Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are perhaps disproportionately more likely to be in such areas. And here with those particular populations, you will have um, additional cumulative impact as well, historical trauma, some communities. Now, impoverished areas are generally poorly equipped to deal with the high level on, of ongoing crises. They're also more likely to produce uh, traumatised individuals who uh, are angry or feel socially alienated or ostracised by the rest of society and therefore highly reactive. 
and controls over, control over one's life in these situations is, is more, more likely to be uh, diminished and that ultra-stressful environment can lead to law-breaking behaviour brought to the attention of police. Now, imprisonment rates uh, are different. They're politically determined. Um, and this is where the law and order style politics can make a serious difference. As I mentioned before, if you have two states, hypothetically, um, one state has more of an emphasis on non-custodial uh, diversionary alternatives, while the other has more of a punitive approach, um, then we'll probably see difference in sentencing trends and therefore diverging imprisonment patterns. Law and order strategies, as, as we all know, are also politically popular with the public. However, they are reactionary, uh, they, they tend to be knee-jerk, um, and they don't actually address the underlying causes of crime like social deprivation. So they tend to sweep up a lot of the people who are disconnected or come from precarious living environments. So rather than address the causes and effects of social issues, law and order basically leaves it to the justice system to deal with, which is just frankly untrained to repair social disadvantage. Now, law and order strategies not only uh, serve to embolden imprisonment rates, but they inadvertently sustain social deprivation as well. Um, now, this is through collateral damage or collateral impact um, that tough on crime strategies have on communities. So we have people committing crimes in abject social conditions. Uh, we lock them up, we release them back into the same environment, ex except now they're much less employable. Um, they may have toughened, on the, toughened inside, they've got hardening attitude, hardened attitudes, developed more antisocial attitudes, and they've probably developed a, a broader uh, criminal peer network. And in the process, they've also lost ties that they may have had uh, in the community as well when they were locked up. So what does that mean for the community? Well, it has that flow-on impact, that flow-on effect um, of collateral damage. So when you have a community that has citizens who are uh, frequently, frequently coming in and out of prison, um, or correctional transients, if you will, you have an increasingly unstable environment with a diminished ca uh, capacity for community cohesion. And this can render entire neighbourhoods ineffective at just promoting pro-social behaviour uh, or teaching kids how to uh, avoid delinquent uh, behaviours. Now, these situations can be crime-promoting in and of, its, on, of themselves. And so here we have, you know, law and order strategies can also spill into uh, crime rates as well in other ways through over-policing or differential enforcement in certain communities. Now, for those like myself who work in uh, the justice health profession, uh, this situation can be a little bit overwhelming and a, a little bit saddening, particularly because, you know, we've got these socio-political forces that I've just described that seemingly out of, you know, out of our own control and they deliver us frequently individuals, disproportionately Aboriginal, whose needs uh, have not been met in the community um, and now they're expected to be met or managed in custodial settings. And this has made all the more difficult you know, in a tough-on-crime paradigm um, where just desserts is preferred over therapeutic initiatives. So it's easy to become defeatist with the knowledge that there are A, not enough alternatives to custody and B, insufficient attempts to rectify that social disadvantage. But there is a lot we can still do in our capacity as medico-legal professionals and researchers, community members and advocates. And this is what I want to discuss today. So what are the initiatives and attitudes that we can personally hold or consider um, beyond law and order approaches? So to begin this discussion, I actually want to share with you uh, some of the research, some findings from some of the research I've committed, um, conducted over the last 18 months. Now, these findings provide some insight into the sort of met needs and unmet needs Indigenous people in custody and in the community and indicate the need for alterations in service delivery. So this study, well, the analyses was conducted between 2015 and 2016 by myself 
uh, as a representative of the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science, and this was in conjunction with uh, the Koori Justice Unit, Victorian Department of Justice. So the aim here was to identify the met and unmet needs in prison, as well as uh, associations with cultural connection and cultural identity. So we, we managed to gather a representative sample of 122 of male and female Koori prisoners from 11 different prisoners, prisons in Victoria. And I'm going to summarise the findings now, which were particularly interesting. Okay, so study one, we, we discovered that the prison itself, so the prison environment itself in Victoria, met, seemed to meet the general needs of many Indigenous people in custody. So it provided food, it provided accommodation, provided daytime activities, there was improved self-care, um, improved safety to self, there was available company for socialising, and um, also general treatment. There was availability of general treatment needs. Now, most of the sample acknowledged that their needs were being met in those regards. So that was, it was quite a kind of indictment that you know, those particular needs weren't being met in the community and it was a, sort of an upgrade for a lot, of, a lot of the people that we were interviewing. However, there were two common unmet needs that we found across the sample. Elevated, like seriously elevated levels of psychological distress, uh, which was, that, was, that was ubiquitous in the sample, and also safety to others. So this was putting others in danger around you, around you not just in custodial environments, but in the community as well. So those needs were unaddressed in prison, indicating that there was probably a lack of therapeutic options to deal with those specific issues, those specific treatment needs. Now, given that the majority of uh, Indigenous offenders in Victoria locked up for violent offences, you'd probably want options inside to deal with things like elevated levels of psychological distress um, and the capacity to inflict harm on others. So after ascertaining those gen general and, and, and specific uh, or treatment needs, we followed the sample post-release into the community. Now we found that prisoners who had more unmet needs, they found that they had greater unmet needs in, in the custodial environment, they were much more likely to offend and offend earlier. Now those who were the group that did actually go on to re-offend, we found that they were less likely to have their treatment needs unmet in prison. So re-offending re here among uh, the Indigenous cohort in Victoria was related to unmet needs in custody. Interestingly, drug use or, or, or needs relating to, to drug use or unmet needs, treatment needs, that was found to be the strongest predictor of violent reoffence. So what do we take from study one? Prison seems to be meeting the non-criminogenic needs, the, ba the basic day-to-day -day health and activity needs, general health. But it's definitely not broadly addressing or reducing needs related to distress, um, violence to others and substance use. Those three key um, un unmet needs related to offending. So there's significant gaps here in service delivery. Now this could mean several things, either there, were, there weren't any or there just weren't enough programs in prison addressing those concerns for that cohort, or there are but not everyone has access to them and that's not entirely uncommon having worked in prisons, or there are, uh, there probably are, but maybe the Indigenous prisons are not engaging with them for, for whatever reason, perhaps the programs aren't culturally appropriate. Okay, so we decided to investigate further by looking at the cultural identity of the sample. Um, and we measured this um, expediently, but, but it, is, it is a difficult thing to measure. And we used uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander identity scale, seven item scale. Now this was, we took this from a, a broader uh, social and emotional wellbeing questionnaire, which was created by an advisory group of Aboriginal psychologists for the study. Now, the identity scale included such items such as the importance you, you, you afford to culture, whether you have pride in, in, in your culture, having access to cultural activities, um, knowing who your you know, tribal, uh, clan or language group uh, is, 
Now, from implementing the scale, we partitioned uh, the sample into two groups, and this just was uh, expedient, um, but for the purposes of the study. So we had a, a, a strong Indigenous identity group, and we had a, I guess, poorly named, weaker Indigenous identity group. But they're the, they're the two groups um, that we divided or partitioned the sample into based on their scores on the identity scale. Now, interestingly, both groups were equally proud to be uh, Indigenous. So every single person scored high on that particular item. However, the major differences between the strong identity group and the weak identity group, well, there were, two, there were two. One was that the high identity group were able to identify who their tribal group was, who their language group was or clan. And they had been able to participate in cultural activities. So what we did then, we looked at the impact of identity on a range of outcomes. First of all, um, we found that if you had a weaker Indigenous identity in prison, you were experiencing significantly higher levels of distress compared to those who had a stronger cultural identity. We also found that having a stronger Indigenous identity meant you had a lot more personal agency, right? so control over your life or perceived control over your life compared to those um, with a weaker identity. Now, having that personal control, having that agency actually lowered their distress levels as well. So study two found that strong Indigenous identity associated with lower levels of distress, more control over one's life, weaker Indigenous identity associated with higher levels of distress in that custodial environment. Then we had a look at identity and recidivism. So if we just looked at point two there, first of all, we found that just identity alone had no impact on recidivism in isolation. So whether you had a strong or weak identity, it, it made no difference as far as when and how you re-offended. However, um, we added another variable, which was connection with culture, right? And so this variable was described as you know, sustaining cultural bonds, um, being able to express your identity um, and actually feeling connected to it. So we thought that was different to identity because you, you could you know, have a strong identity with a cultural group but not necessarily have the means to participate in it um, and therefore establish a connection. Now what we found here, so if you had a stronger Indigenous identity and you were culturally connected in custody, then that, uh, that led to a significant less likelihood of violently reoffending on release. Now this finding didn't actually hold for, for the weaker uh, identity group. So for whatever reason, uh, you know, their cultural connections may have had less of an impact um, on recidivism um, and it may have you know, their situation meant prevention or precluding of developing a meaningful connection, perhaps. Now, this is a key finding for custodial treatment. So I guess the question is, so why did the low-identify, uh, weaker identity group have trouble establishing that connection? Or well, it wasn't meaningful enough to contribute to, to lowering recidivism. Now, we speculated it could have something to do with cultural efficacy. So this is not perceiving oneself to actually have the resources uh, to express cultural behaviour or even knowing how to. Now, recall that the, the weaker identity group um, were less likely to know about their, their tribal group or have a history of participating in cultural events. Now, that's not particularly unusual because um, some of the NATSIS surveys have found that, so, for example, five out of ten uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in urban areas did not do not identify um, with the tribal group. Um, so it could be that for the, for the lower identity group, just not having the resources to learn about their mob prevented them from having that meaningful connection. It also might be that the lower identifiers have a confused identity. Um, you know, they're not attached to either you know, a dominant culture or, or an Indigenous identity. Um, 
It may be that they had no personal interest in strengthening it as well. It could be that they, you know, perhaps forced to be part of an Aboriginal group in prison because prison is often partitioned along racial lines. But then I wasn't so sure about that because every person, as I said in the sample, were equally proud of their Indigenous heritage. So to summarise those three studies, Corey uh, prisoner violent offending was associated with key unmet treatment needs in prison around distress, safety to others and untreated substance use. But if you're a if you were a participant that had a stronger Indigenous identity, your distress levels were lower and you had greater agency. And on top of that, if you were culturally connected as well, you were less likely to commit violence upon release. So th th these were quite novel findings and they tell us that, one, the programming appears to be insufficient, at least for uh, treatment needs. And two, that cultural identity and a stronger attachment to it is a prominent protective factor for Indigenous people in custody and requires greater attention. So what are the results telling us? Well, they tell us that culture actually matters in custodial settings quite a lot. Now, this is not an unusual phenomenon. Um, we know that culture shapes every aspect of patient care or client care. Culture very much determines what is normal, what is acceptable, what is typical behaviour or what is taboo. Um, culture determines how we communicate, you know, how do we shape our goals, how do we frame our motivations. Culture determines which health model we even ascribe to. Right? So is it more of a biomedical model or is it more of a holistic understanding of health that has a, perhaps has a metaphysical domain? Or is, it, or is it both? And culture determines health expectations, health explanations and remedies. Culture also determines how we describe our illness. Right? So there are cultural idioms of distress there are illness metaphors and there are cultural-specific symptom reporting styles. Culture determines also how an individual seeks help for health concerns. So family might be their first point of call, for example. Um, traditional healers may be sought. Opportunity structures in society might preclude some groups from accessing primary health care. Culture also determines how health service providers may respond to a patient or client as well. So do they provide a culturally safe array of practices and treatments or is it more of a one-size-fits-all situation? So what I'm saying is that culture cannot be ignored in health and legal settings. So what, what are the results not saying? So you, you notice like in, in the study we, we didn't define cultural identity as anything other than the level of importance you, you might hold to knowing aspects of your culture, your pride in culture, your participation in cultural activities and your actual knowledge of your cultural group. It's not saying any thing more than that, and, and you know, that was determined because people choose to express or involve them, themselves in their culture in many different ways. So for some it's about language, um, connection to land, customary law. Others, other people might be happily bicultural and, and pick and choose what elements you know, that they, they want to ascribe to. Others might prefer their attachment just to be purely nominal or, or symbolic. Um, others might prefer to have a greater level of cultural immersion. Right, so, but culture is also fluid and it's not freeze-framed in time and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are, are a very heterogeneous group. Now what the results are not saying is that a strong identity will necessarily guarantee you good health, right? But clearly it's, it, but it is one component of uh, holistic care that we should be uh, focusing on. But what we do know from the findings is that it did play a role in limiting distress and when in combination with a strong cultural connection it actually limited violence in the sample. So Certainly cultural considerations must be a complementary uh, part of rehabilitation in that they might 
it might actually provide enough stress reduction and enough personal agency to participate in or reap the benefits of a rehabilitation plan. Or perhaps culture could actually be the basis for rehabilitation or play a central part in therapy depending on the cultural needs of the, of the client. In fact, the, the recent Hamburger report, um, which reviewed the Northern Territory Correctional Services, actually states in its findings that before the young offenders begin to work on their offending, they actually need healing time for reflection, spirituality and connection. So how do we do a better job at, a, at meeting the therapeutic needs of Indigenous people in custody? So first we need a therapeutic environment to begin with. Right. So I want to outline some of the pathways forward and I'll begin at the individual level and then zoom out. So first and foremost, we need to develop as individuals, as healthcare workers, justice officials, correctional officers, medical legal professionals, etc., um, a sense of personal cultural safety. Right? And I referred to before the importance of culture in shaping health-seeking behaviours uh, and health service responses. So this means we, we can no longer ignore cultural relevant information from our processes. Otherwise, we have a restrictive processes. Right? And this can impact something as simple as cross-cultural um, interaction between the provider and the client. So what is cultural safety? So to answer that, first I want to start with cultural awareness. Right? So cultural awareness is where you learn about the tradition and norms of a different cultural group. Right? It's often the stock standard training that's rolled out across organisations, usually in a perfunctory manner, maybe once a year or maybe just once. Now, it's often described as like visiting a museum, right? You pick up a few protocols and artefacts of a different culture. But the problem with cultural awareness training is that it's very limited and it's actually impractical. And it often serves to render the other group to stereotypes. In many ways, it problematizes the other group. It um, exoticizes the other group, um, homogenizes the other group and actually others the other group. But it also makes us think that that group is actually, you know, the cause of all the communication breakdowns. It has very little bearing on actual practice. Now, this is where cultural safety comes in. Right? So cultural safety actually puts the onus on the service provider. It asks the provider, how, how do our belief systems, our worldviews and biases and prejudices, um, how do they impact on our interaction with clients? So this entails a process of self-reflection and an understanding of one's own cultural identity and one's own expectations um, of how your ideas may be imposed on a client from a different culture. So if, if we have no understanding of our own cultural identity or our own level of ethnocentrism, as everyone has a degree of ethnocentrism, then it becomes all the more difficult to acknowledge the lens through which you view other people. Now, cultural safety also expects clinicians to be aware of the structural causes of disadvantage right, and how unequal power imbalances may impact health-seeking and law-breaking behaviours. Cultural safety can also help clinicians better identify racism as well when it emerges and acknowledging the impact this might have on the lives of their clients. So I quite often get uh, asked advice from clinicians um, you know, when they're writing up reports about um, multicultural clients that they might have, minority clients, and a lot of it is around racism. And so a common question I get is, you know, I've got, I've, got this, I've got this client who says they're experiencing a lot of racism, whether it's from law enforcement or other authorities, but I noticed in the dialogue that, um, you know, that the police didn't actually use a racial epithet. So I think the client's being a little oversensitive or a bit hypervigilant here. And, and so then I'll say to them, well, it doesn't actually have to be a racial epithet necessarily to be racism. And so, so for example, I'll use an example of when I was younger and you know, I was driving home and I'd sometimes drive through an affluent area to get home 
and I'd get pulled over and the police officer, when seeing me, would say, oh, so what are you doing here? Why are you here? Why are you in this area? So, yes, there was no racial epithet delivered to me at all, but there's an underlying sentiment that is perhaps discriminatory. So, cultural safety here can help here as it, as it implores clinicians or, or providers to interrogate their own frames of reference, to interrogate their own privilege that they might have now, cultural safety can be measured as well and it's usually through the experiences of the minority clients themselves. So did they feel that they received treatment in a way where they felt that their cultural background wasn't actually demeaned in the process? And it doesn't, it doesn't even... And that's regardless of you know, um, how, you know, what, what culture they follow or how assimilated they are. Now, I also want to talk about some of the hindrances right, that can preclude an individual transforming into a culturally safe worker. So, first of all, colour blindness, right? So, this is, this is the notion that we treat everybody the same, right? The cultural differences don't matter, they shouldn't matter, we treat everyone the same, we're all humans, right? Now, this mentality is widespread um, and it's often held by well-meaning people, right? But it does serve to ignore uh, disparities. It, serves, it also ignores people's social realities and their own lived experiences. It also leads to blaming individuals um, for their group's disparities. It also ignores how the mainstream cultural status quo could actually prompt the disparities. The obvious point here also is if we're colourblind and you know, um, we're not acknowledging any cultural differences and we're all the same, then which cultural norms are we utilising then in that case? It probably means that we're falling back on, uh, on a monocultural standard. So you've heard the line, I'm not racist, I don't care if you're black, brown, blue, green, you know that line. It's actually false because nobody treats everyone the same whether it's in their social life or in their working life. So, for example, as a clinician, if you've got three different patients, it could be an elderly woman, it could be uh, a young boy or someone with cognitive impairment, you want the same, you want equitable outcomes for all three, but you're going to have to approach that situation differently. You can't treat them all the same because you're going to offend somebody um, and some people might have different needs. So you need to approach that clinical encounter differently if you want to have equitable outcomes for all three people. Many people of colour will also tell you how their, their race or cultural background has influenced so many of their daily interactions. It's inescapable. And there's an abundance of research now, and most of you would be aware of differential hiring practices based on uh, the assumed culture on someone's CV or prejudice in the housing market. So colour blindness is something I think firstly is kind of false, it's unattainable, but when, it, when there's an attempt to, to do it, it's actually very bad for meeting the needs of diverse clients. I also want to talk about microaggressions as well, because um, these, are, these are absolutely widespread. Now, these are, these are everyday, subtle, verbal, non-verbal put-downs or indignities directed at, I guess, minority groups or, or women. They're often automatic, um, they're often unconscious, and once again, they're usually delivered by well-meaning people. Now, this can be as innocuous as a um, dismissive look or a gesture, um, like my example with the police officer that I mentioned before. Now, other examples of microaggressions are as such. So, for example, saying to a person of colour born in Australia, um, oh, you, you, know, you speak really excellent English, or telling an Aboriginal person that they're too white to look Aboriginal, um, telling a person of colour that they're really articulate, you know, and you emphasise that, or assuming that non-white Australians must all have been born elsewhere, imp implying that they're a foreigner. Or, for example, if you're, if you're a high-achieving Aboriginal person, being told, oh, you're, you're all right, you're, you're, you're not like the others, or, you know, you're, you're a credit to your your race or did you get into university through some kind of special scheme or through affirmative action? So they're all examples. 
Actually, that reminds me, when I was in the US, I got delivered the, the mother of all microaggressions by someone who was a, a friend of mine that I'd known for quite a while. And I remember my dad flew over from Australia to, to see me, and my dad's white. And so when I introduced him to my dad, they sort of looked at my dad, then they looked at me, and I, and I about to open their mouth, and I thought, oh, here we go, here comes a microaggression. But I, I wasn't prepared for the severity of it. They looked at him and said, oh, your dad's white. And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, that explains it. I said, explains what? I said, oh, you're very well spoken. You know, you, you've, you know um, you're very well educated. And they said it as a matter, in a matter-of-fact way. Um, and, you know, I, don't, I didn't think they thought they were being offensive. They thought they were actually giving me a compliment. So that, that's a typical example of a microaggression. And they're actually quite pervasive. But they're also very common in the justice system. Um, they're common, um, you know, in, in health. Um, scenarios. And I've seen a lot of microaggressive language as well in just mental health reports for Aboriginal clients. For, for example, question, you know, or psychologist notes, sort of questioning their Aboriginality. Um, it's actually quite uh, pervasive. So colour blindness, microaggressions, these are a scourge on effective cross-cultural therapeutic relationships. Um, so as health workers, uh, justice officials, we can't go around saying, oh, I, don't, I don't see race, you know, I, don't, I don't see your cultural background when I treat you, I treat everyone the same. Because A, uh, we don't treat everyone the same. It's a, it's very, same is very subjective. And B, in saying such a comment, we actually delegitimise that person's lived experience. So the key here also is, from an individual perspective, is humility and, and questioning yourself, right? self-reflection. Am I a culturally safe worker? Right? Am I informed enough to understand broader socio-historical factors that undergird client profiles and issues such as, for example, in intergenerational trauma, impact of child removal, dealing with clients who have a conflicted identity. You know, do I have the ability to deal with these issues um, as, a, as a service provider? Does my organisation provide me with the skill set to even address these issues? Does the program I run address Indigenous cultural needs? Do, does, do we even know what Indigenous cultural needs are? Do Indigenous client profiles, which are, are commonly multifaceted, operating at the individual, family, community, uh, cultural and historical levels, do these needs actually fit neatly into existing correctional programs? And how do we know if they, if they don't? Have, has the, have the programs, have our programs undergone local Indigenous peer review? And if an Indigenous prisoner uh, or client refuses to partake or cooperate or benefit from my program, then what, what are we doing wrong? Am I familiar with the cultural idioms of distress and culturally bound symptom expressions? Am I pathologising something that might be culturally normative? Do I understand my client's experiences of racism, whether it's institutional or interpersonal? How, is, how does my culture and my beliefs impact my client's ability to share personal information with me or mistrust me or withhold information from me? Uh, how is it affecting their ability to adhere to the treatment that I prescribed them? How is it hindering their ability to comply or cooperate in a prison environment? So if we don't, if we don't ask those questions um, or we don't comfortably acknowledge our limitations here um, or we don't even bother to work on ways to acquire these skills, then we're not culturally safe service providers. And this does become an unjust situation for Aboriginal clients. It's also bad from a practical um, position, right, because we need to uh, draw from as many sources as possible to improve client care and outcomes. Well, that's just common sense. And now there are a lot of people in this area working hard to provide better outcomes um, for, for clients. And it's important that we do maintain those efforts, right? But at the same time, to think critically about the training and the methods we use as well. Okay, so 
what can we do, I guess, from an organisational perspective? What are some of the therapeutic options worth considering within Justice Health? Um, now, bear in mind, several of these are all already in operation in various forms, though sadly incomplete a lot of the time or just under-resourced. So culturally safe organisations. Prisons, as I've shown, do provide an opportunity to address health concerns for Indigenous clientele. Now, research has actually shown that for Indigenous people who are actually in custody, they're more likely to ac access healthcare in custody than they are in the community. Right? So this underscores the need for correctional services to actually be culturally safe. We can't have a narrow uh, range of views at the top or an excessive focus on one belief system or practices. Right? So, you know, do we have an organisation that actually asks whether other standards exist? Do we have Indigenous people involved in executive decision making? So when you have diverse views um, at the centre of correctional and health service delivery, you'll actually get more relevant service provision. We've seen that occur to some extent in New Zealand where cultural safety has been legislatively embedded in health service delivery for some time now. So we do need a top-down commitment from an institution uh, or department to cultural safety. And management styles must reflect the importance of cross-cultural service provision. Organisations should also focus on client strengths and not operate under a deficit model of health. Organisations must ensure that they have the resources to meet client diversity, the resources to both hire and then continue to train staff to ensure that they have the cult cultural skills um, to deliver um, cultural safety. And by staff, I mean all staff including the executive. So it's important to ensure that the, the institution is committed to cultural safety and this allows for uh, better individual development for the staff, to remind them of cultural safety protocols, to remind them to, remind them to avoid colour blindness and microaggressions, but it also enables them to pick up health concerns as well that often go undiagnosed among Indigenous people in custody. We also don't want institutions that pu push a real sort of strict line of cultural conformity either because right, this is going to quickly alienate many people. We absolutely cannot have an unwritten motive of, and I, and I did get a sentiment of this in the US in some areas, that you either assimilate your way to good health or you stay culturally attached and suffer. Right, that, that dichotomy can't happen. And so it's about understanding that client groups have different needs, understanding that cultural conflict is actually inevitable as well, but having the structures in place and having the qualified staff prepared to address any cross-cultural issues that will inevitably arise. This is much better than being reactionary or resorting to punitive tactics or discovering that this is only a problem that needs attention after a Royal Commission. I guess in the process we also want to avoid sort of tokenism or shallow attempts at addressing this or disingenuity. And I've seen this I've seen this quite a lot and this could mean sort of superficially or clumsily attaching pieces of uh, Aboriginal culture to a Western-based program to make it sound more attractive to Aboriginal clients or cosmetically giving the appearance that it's culturally safe when it was not actually developed at all from an Aboriginal perspective. I also want to sort of mention reconciliation action plans um, which ha have, a, have a good general motive but sometimes they're disingenuous too. So you might have noticed the increase in reconciliation action plans over the past decade from various organisations. So they're often launched with, with much fanfare and excitement but Unfortunately, a lot of them disappear into the abyss after two to three years without any idea as to whether the goals were met or, um, or even looked at over time. And the language, language in them is ambitious, um, which can be good, but they're very rarely audited. Right? So I feel like if we're going to continue to have reconciliation action plans um, from organisations, then they need to be implemented widely 
be attached to performance indicators and perhaps independently overseen by an appropriate advisory body as well. Okay, so I think a stronger em emphasis on through care is absolutely vital, right? So even, I mean, we could have the best design prison programs available in a hypothetically culturally safe organisation. But we might not see that impact sustained if there is no appropriate through care on release. So through care is the, the coordinated service provision that supports a client from their time in prison to when they're resettled back into the community. Now, this whole idea is about continuity of care. It's about engaging people in programs in prison, planning for release, having supports on the outside to facilitate that transition um, and sustaining on build, and building on any progress that may have been developed inside or just being able to get through that parole period. And we don't want to undo any therapeutic work made in a hypothetically culturally safe prison by sending someone back to a criminal, criminogenic environment with absolutely zero supports. So therefore we, we need to consider both reintegration and rehabilitation. And for complex needs offenders, one can't work without the other. You need both. So for example, if one's basic life needs are not in order, then it's unlikely that they're either going to make the most of their treatment or even access it. On the other hand, if someone is actually accessing treatment and making it to treatment, but their basic life needs are not, or reintegrative life needs are not met, then this, they'll at some point go back into survival mode and probably lead them back to the criminal justice system and they won't finish their treatment, particularly if they're on under you know, onerous parole conditions. So through care can help. And supports may include you know, accommodation, treatment, connection with primary health care services, um, reconnection with family, developing personal life skills, etc. And this is so important because um, transition from prison back into the community, uh, this is probably the highest risk time for reoffending and also mortality as well. Unfortunately, these services for Indigenous clients, um, and, and there are services around, these are chronically underfunded, despite you know, the very important service role they provide. There are a lot of good services in this space around the country. But this area requires serious attention and better funding if we are wanting to reduce Indigenous incarceration. I also want to mention judicial monitoring. Um, so judicial monitoring is informed by the, the field of therapeutic jurisprudence. And this is where the law is administered as a therapeutic agent. So here an offender can appear before the magistrate several times while their progress, sort of engaging in rehabilitative uh, programs and other life improvement goals, are carefully monitored by the magistrate, uh, whose role is to encourage and motivate behavioural change. Now, this process is less punitive, um, it's non-adversarial, and it allows offenders to actually own uh, their negotiated goals whilst being held accountable. Now, these problem-solving courts uh, tend to be tailored to those with complex needs, and mental health, uh, and substance abuse issues, and the socially and culturally disadvantaged. So in Victoria, circle sentencing, um, Indigenous clients, falls under judicial monitoring. So in the Koori courts in Victoria, magistrates do have the ability to defer sentencing to enable the client to engage in rehabilitation programs and cultural services. And here the court will maintain contact with the client during this period, uh, providing cultural support until they return um, for sentencing. I also want to mention Gladue reports, and I think they're gaining some traction in some parts of the country. So Gladue reports, they're from Canada. So under the Canadian Criminal Code, judges are expected to consider the unique issues that contextualise Aboriginal offense, offending and sentencing. So here the uh, decreasing use of incarceration is emphasised and all other, other available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances, of course, are to be considered. Now, these are called the Gladue Principles. Now, as part of the Gladue Principles, 
judges are expected to call for a Gulladu report. Now, this is a pre-sentence report written by an Aboriginal caseworker that includes all the facts relevant to the client's Aboriginality uh, and options for healing as well. Now, the aim of a Gladu report is to provide the judge with a much deeper understanding of the social circumstances uh, of the Aboriginal offending, so contextualises uh, the offending. Some of the issues included in a Gladu report include the following, and I've changed the wording to suit Australian conditions. So it might ask, for example, is the client a member of the Stolen Generations? Did they experience childhood or, or are they experiencing current poverty? Have they or do they ha have had access to culturally relevant or healing resources? Have they been dislocated from an Aboriginal community or including the loss of their identity, culture and ancestral knowledge? Is drug abuse or alcohol use, is it common in the community they're from? Do they have family members that were part of the Stolen Generations? Were they in foster care? Were they removed from their family as a child? And if so, was it with non-Aboriginal carers? Have they had a lack of educational opportunities? Have they experienced racism, overt or covert? What are the social issues affecting the offender's community and are they being addressed politically? Has there been suicide among friends or family? Do they have a cultural or spiritual support network? Have they witnessed violence? Is there a general lack of resources in the community? And do they have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or cognitive impairment or learning difficulties? What are their career goals? Do they have a connection to the Aboriginal community and culture? And what are their personal strengths and attributes and significant cultural relationships? So this is a very sort of deep, broad and contextualised um, culturally unique information. And so based on that information and some of the other health issues that the caseworker might um, ascertain, um, the caseworker will then propose interventions and restorative justice options as part of the pre-sentence report. So Gladue reports could actually be quite useful in an Australian context, um, but as it stands right now within Australian legal frameworks, um, they, don't they don't explicitly refer to the unique circumstances of Aboriginal Australians. Okay, so I also want to mention therapeutic housing options. So in the interest of upholding um, the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendation of imprisonment as a last resort, we should start to explore alternatives to prison in the form of therapeutic housing, um, but not just as an alternative to custody, but also as transitional housing, sort of post-release or bail accommodation. Now, Victorian magistrate Jenny Bowles recently recommended the introduction of youth therapeutic orders where young people can actually be placed in a therapeutic residential facility instead of going to prison. Now, the idea here is that the youth with complex needs will have access to highly skilled clinical staff around the clock with a focus on ensuring client wellbeing and preparation for transition back into the community. So here the underlying issues of youth crime are the focus of these facilities, which are, uh, have a commitment to intensive care. Now, these issues, are, as it stands now, are unlikely to be addressed appropriately in youth prisons. There may be scope here to think about Indigenous-specific therapeutic residential facilities in line with what, what the magistrate described that provide a culturally-based service. Similar facilities could be util utilised for transitional purposes, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we know that a lot of Indigenous youth are unable to get parole um, because they've been deemed to not have a responsible carer, for example. So some of th these initiatives, I think, are something we need to give further consideration to. Now, I also want to point out that these initiatives also must operate with the safety of those in the community in mind as well. So more sensible uh, rehabilitation initiatives for offenders does not supersede our duty to protect families, women and children from violence. But I do think a therapeutic approach is more likely to address the complex needs of an offender rather than the tough on crime approach 
which results in offenders leaving prison in a much poorer state and straight back to the community with little support. It's also often mentioned that therapeutic approaches are too expensive, right? therapeutic facilities are too expensive. But as Dennis Glover, a, Mel a Melbourne academic, recently remarked, we can either pay for their success or we can pay for their failure. And failure is much more expensive in the long run. We've also got to think about paying correctional staff more. Right? Therapeutic approaches do require uh, highly skilled staff. Um, position in corrections can be poorly paid. And, you know, if you, um, you know, a lot of people might not want to work in that particular environment um, on, on the low salaries that are, that are offered. Because um, can, it can be a very stressful and challenging environment to work in. Um, and I think we're not valuing people in custody, if we're Indigenous people in custody, if we're not attracting the highest quality correctional staff. And we're also not valuing our staff either if we continue to considerably underpay them. Now, I just want to um, make some final remarks. Now, this... So, it is me. Uh, <laughs> so, this photo was from the USA. Um, I, this was a newspaper article that myself and my colleague, Nebraska, did on... We were looking at um, how risk instruments tend to over-criminalise native youth. And this was the photo they took. They put it in the newspaper and they put it online. And one of my colleagues saw this and felt that it looked like a, a very tacky promo for a, a bad police TV show. <laughs> and then they superimposed Law and Order Cultural Competence Unit and then decided to disseminate it um, on social media. So it was, quite, it was kind of funny, but and it sort of apt to, to what I'm talking about. So just to make some final remarks, uh, Law and Order is, is, as we know, driven by populism, reactionary politics. And it does lead us to practices like mandatory sentencing and paperless arrests, targeted law enforcement strategies, but also this kind of simultaneous pullback on, on initiatives that focus on the underlying drivers of crime. We do, I, I believe we do need prisons. I'm not an abolitionist. There are people whose behaviours have and will put the community at risk. But that doesn't mean that we cannot promote behavioural change in custodial circumstances and during transition that supports the aims of rehabilitation. Now, if we don't, many clients will just pose a far greater risk to the community on release, owing to the punitive conditions and harmful impacts of prison. Now, tough-on-crime policies also disproportionately impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And some might argue, well, well how can the law have this effect? How, how can a law be biased in and of itself to have that disparate outcome? Well, I would say that the law doesn't operate in a vacuum. So if you implement a a so-called neutral law into an unequal situation, it perhaps could sustain or perhaps exacerbate that inequality. And it, that leads to a question, is, is, is a policy racist if it creates a, um, you know, a racial disparity? Is it about the intent or is it more about the outcome? But I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for others to debate. But what I do want to say is that we need to be cautious or have the appropriate foresight into how we uh, introduce a law that might disproportionately impact a group of people or an already socially deprived community which just does not have the uh, resources or social capital to recover from those impacts. And tough on crime policies essentially leaves the justice system to deal with the causes and effects of social problems. But as I've said throughout the pre uh, presentation, it doesn't mean that we who work in corrections and justice health and relevant departments shouldn't do everything we can to create a more uh, culturally safe and therapeutic uh, custodial environment. So I'll leave it there um, and thanks for your attention. Uh, we'd like to open the floor to some questions.
Yeah, so that was one limitation of the study um, because, it, it, well, one, there's, there's not a lot of, um, com, com, and compared to other uh, places in Australia, a lot of, not a lot of Aboriginal people in custody as far as numbers are concerned. It was a representative sample. I think we only got around 13 or 14 women, unfortunately, so we, it wasn't enough. It didn't have enough statistical power to actually look at differences. Um, but just from some of the reports that are, out of, that are available, levels of trauma much higher among Indigenous women prisoners, um, a men mental illness uh, higher, um, histories of abuse, uh, substance use, homelessness. Um, these are all elevated among Indigenous female prisoners compared to males. Yeah. Yeah, age, we didn't control for age, but geographically it was very similar across the two groups. Yeah. But not, no, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think we've controlled for age. Um, I'll have to revisit that and have a look. But yeah, it, it could have made an impact because, you know, if, you, if, if, yeah, if you're younger, you might not have attached the connection. Yeah, so that's absolutely possible. Um, but in terms of geographic... Pardon? Yeah, 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 that's right. Sure. Yeah, and I think I saw a, another stat from that NATSA survey that showed that, I think, what was the age group? Indigenous kids um, in urban areas weren't spending a lot of time with elders, or they didn't have access to um, them, so I, I, as much as other areas. And I think our population was, a, I think it was predominantly urban. Um, obviously, no, there were no remote people from remote communities. Um, but yeah, mainly from Melbourne region and some from I think you know the Shepparton areas, um, in Mildura, for example. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's absolutely a valid point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say I'd say yeah, they're they're culturally responsive. They're culturally um, more culturally appropriate. It's, it's more of an informal session, so so you do have uh, elders involved. Um, you have, you know, maybe community workers and social workers around and you get to discuss um, sort of the client's culture but also some of the drivers that may have led them to um, their offending. It's not, a, it's not an adversarial process and, and there are uh, um, Koori court workers that will communicate with the client, um, you know, before and after as well to ensure that they are receiving culturally appropriate services or connecting them to their uh, culture or identifying other needs. So it is a more of a restorative approach. And yet, uh, it is definitely more culturally appropriate from what I've seen, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I would say that that escalated very much because of the law and order politics, law and order initiatives for the last 10 years. And yeah, I don't think there's a, I mean, just from that hamburger report I mentioned before, there was a lack of therapeutic initiatives um, in, the, in that environment. But I think a lot of that also speaks to, and this is, this is one good thing that I've seen with the uh, Royal Commission is, is that it's not just, it is focused on getting to the bottom of what happened in, in custody, but it's also looking some of the broader social 
disadvantages in the community as well that are, uh, that are sort of facilitating that pipeline from the community to prison. Um, there aren't enough alternatives to custody over there in, in the Northern Territory. Um, and I mean, that's the place that had mandatory sentencing at one point, and I think still does in, in some particular, yeah, for some particular laws. Um, so yeah, um, I think, yeah, you're right. There needs to be much more of a therapeutic approach. A lot of the things that I mentioned today, I don't think uh, occur right now at all. I, no, yeah. Oh, you're from the Northern Territory, so you know a lot more about that. So from a Victorian perspective, a lot of the initiatives that I've mentioned, are, some of them are actually already implemented, but um, I think we do a better job in Victoria at sort of recognising those particular issues. We've had more of a welfareist focus traditionally on youth imprisonment, and that's why we've generally had the lowest you know, rates of crime in the country. Um, but yeah, because we, we at least accommodate the idea of a therapeutic approach, but we never implement it properly enough or afford it ongoing institutional support. But it seems to be in stark contrast to what's going on in the Northern Territory. Yeah. Yeah, but from, from what I've read, um, law and order strategies tend to be the, you know, the, the preference over there. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's some just organisational issues too when it comes to, you know, you've got um, the siloed nature of a lot of governmental departments. There's a very poor cross-cultural agency uh, discussion, but that's the way a lot of the sort of departments are set up. You know, you've got different governments or departments working under different timescales and different policy objectives and that sort of constrains the ability to work sort of cooperatively to, to produce outcomes like that. Um, you've also got long chains of command, some de decentralisation there. Um, and I think with the therapeutic initiatives, they get hijacked very quickly by salacious news reporting um, that generate fear among the public and it just resorts us to sort of law and order policies. So there's this kind of irrational fear uh, by the public that um, crime is much more prevalent and a lot of us are very uh, uninformed about the actual level of crime and the actual base rates. Um, and so politicians like to capitalise on, on that as well. And, you know, law and order policies are a vote-getter. Um, therapeutic options are not. Um, and I think that makes it very difficult to implement. Then you've also got the short-term political cycles, you've got short-termism, um, You've got a, a lot of pressure to create a program in a very short period of time. Um, something might be rolled out when it's not even completed. Um, there might be untrained staff working on it. Um, you know, the review process might be fairly uh, uh, substandard. And if there are, in, in, the, in a review standard, if we find that there are some things not working, we tend to scrap it um, and look for another alternative rather than sort of remodeling it and giving it some time to breathe. Um, you know, so there's a lot of issues there. I also think um, having a diversity of views as well um, in executive decision making, um, I think that can really help in terms of, uh, you know, producing a more, a likelihood of culturally safe therapeutic options. So if you've got a group of people with the, the same mentality, same worldview, um, I think you might have a narrow range of considerations as well. So, yeah, no, I, th I think they're the reasons. There's probably more, but they're the ones that I can come up with right now. So. Mm.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. Yep. Um, I, I was, well, this, this study I wanted to replicate in Nebraska, but then there was, a, there was a few issues over there in terms of gaining access to the prison population, which was unfortunate. So I had to kind of, uh, we created a new study, which actually was equally as interesting, and that's, that's where that photo comes from. Um, but it, it's a different situation over there because, because are, you, are you specifically referring to the Native American population? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so... You, you sometimes have three levels of like, sort of government there. You've got tribal government and you've got tribal jails and then you've got state prisons and you've got federal prisons and it, and it becomes a legal quagmire. So it's actually quite hard to actually, I found when I was over there to draw any kind of similarities for that reason because of the legal situation and it differed state to state. Um, and then you have reservations as well, um, which have tribal police. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I found it very hard. I was hoping to draw some comparisons. Um, but given that legal situation, no, I found it very difficult to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say the, the more sort of economic egalitarian countries where you have more sort of, sort of wealth distribution they tend to have lower incarceration rates generally because they ascribe to a therapeutic model. Um, so, so yeah, I'd say Scandinavia is a good example, for example. Yeah. And in terms of therapeutic facilities that I mentioned, you get them in Scandinavia, and I've also seen them in New Zealand as well. Yeah. And I think because New Zealand has a kind of culturally safe mentality, at least with health, I think you're more likely to get those options, although... You know, I don't know if some of you have been following uh, what's happened over there with justice, trying to set justice targets, and it's, it's ended in a disarray, and now they've sort of headed into kind of law and order policy again. I think, um, so a few, a few years ago, I think four or five years ago, they set a target of 25% reduction in reoffending, which was very ambitious. And then just recently, four or five years later, it only, it only got to 5%. Um, and then they, they consider that to be a dismal failure. And then rather than looking at their own kind of sort of therapeutic options or their reintegrative strategies, they actually blamed it on the offenders themselves and said, oh, well, look, there's, a, there's a, a small group of offenders just committing so many crimes, it's out of our control, we can't do anything. And I thought, well, the, the, the criminological literature has been saying that for 40 years. There, are, there is a small group of offenders that commit most of the crimes. And so now so they've sort of distanced themselves from that and started to, to, to blame the offenders for it. Um, and so as a result, now they're going to put a billion dollars into prison expansion. So, you know, and New Zealand was, has generally been a good model for cultural safety, but not in that circumstance. But as far as therapeutic fa facilities, yes, they, they do have that for uh, some of the Pacific Islander and, and, and Maori, Maori clients. Yeah. I don't know too much about it, but oh. could you maybe give us um, your thoughts on justice reinvestment and the contemporary approach to Yep, yep. Um, so... Yeah, I, I like the idea of justice for investment and I think it, it should be sort of rolled out you know, brought more broadly uh, across Australia. Um, and what I like about it specifically is that there's a sort of community collaborative framework that it has. So justice for investment's divesting money from justice system or prison expansion and um, sort of rein, reinvesting it into the community. Um, so it's a good idea, it's promising um, and it actually gives the community uh, some self-determination and empowerment and it really has a kind of 
localized flavor. Um, so community uh, solutions uh, for community issues. Um, the, the only thing, questions that I have around it is it's, for me it's still a bit fiscally unclear and if, if anyone um, can, you know, has an idea about the sort of fiscal arrangements, um, it'd be good to enlighten me. Um, because I spent some time in the US and I saw how justice reinvestment works in some areas and it's interesting because it's a model that we've spoken about in Australia is one that's successful but I think the US model is not necessarily one we want to mirror. Um, the US, what I saw, tended to take money out of prison expansion and, and um, custodial settings and instead shift it to another area of corrections. So, what, so it depopulated some of the prison population but then it put money into more sort of very strict surveillance and, and monitoring of prisoners in the community. So there wasn't really that investment into the actual community. There wasn't that self-determination or community empowerment. But what I've seen in Australia, though, I, I feel like, you know, what we've seen in New South Wales is that there is that level of self-determination and empowerment. And obviously the model would change depending on the community. But I've liked what I've seen so far. And I, I guess with the fiscal arrangements as well, because um, they're a little bit unclear, I was sort of worried that we you sort of don't want that to fall into the wrong hands either because I've just laid out how we need to invest more into some of the therapeutic options in prison and I'd be worried that any money that's divested out of the correction system programs might be the first thing to go and then we're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So, you know, but that, that might not be how the um, fiscal strategy is arranged but I'm just worried that it could turn into some kind of also neoliberal cost-cutting exercise as well. So I don't, don't want that to happen either. Um, but yeah, certainly very promising. Um, and I guess the other thing, and I'm, and I'm sure a lot of justice reinvestment people would think this as well, it, it, some of the community initiatives, you know, rebuilding the community, um, providing resources, to some extent it shouldn't come, it shouldn't be entirely contingent on what we can pull from the justice system as well. These things should be funded anyway. Right? But you know, I guess if that's what it takes to... Um, you know, promote justice reinvestment more or provide a kind of an, an economic argument, um, you know, for its uh, facilitation, then, yeah, I guess that's uh, how it has to run. But it is somewhat upsetting that it has to be contingent from um, monies that we do pull from the justice system rather than being funded anyway. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks.